Welcome to All Saints Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit allsaintsokc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ASCCOKC. So today we're going to look at verses 18 to 28, and then just a little preview next week. This is a shorter section. Next week we're going to look at chapter 19, and it is pretty mind-blowing. We'll see next week that Paul goes to Ephesus, and we're going to see that introduced today, and it's a clash of two powers. It's going to be the power of God clashing with the Ephesian deities and gods there in Ephesus. So, Lord, we pray as we take a few minutes here to look into your word that you would speak to us. Jesus, we want to encounter you through your word. And just like Luke 24 says, these words draw us to you and reveal you and speak of you. We thank you for your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. So today we're going to see Paul traveling and strengthening the disciples. He's going to be ending his second missionary journey, and he's going to beginning, be beginning his third missionary journey. So we're going to see some of that. We're going to see two main things here. We're going to see Paul strengthening the disciples in the first section, verses 18 to 23. And then secondly, we're going to see something modeled, knowing more about Jesus. So it's a shorter section here. Give us some time to look into the word, and then we may do some more ministry time at the end. So I'm going to read verses 18 to 23, and we're going to look at Paul traveling and strengthening the disciples, and then we'll come back and look at the next section there. So Acts 18, 18 to 28. After staying there for a considerable time, and that's Corinth, Paul and team have been in Corinth, Paul said farewell to the believers and sailed for Syria, Syrian Antioch, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancria, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. When they reached Ephesus, he left them there, but first he himself went into the synagogue and had a discussion with the Jews. When they asked him to stay longer, he declined. But on taking leave of them, Paul said, I will return to you if God wills. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from place to place through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So this section is looking at that. It is Paul traveling around, as I said, ending the second missionary journey. He's saying goodbye to the believers in Corinth. He's sailing for Syria, Antioch, and he's accompanied by his teammates Priscilla and Aquila. And part of the subtext of this is deep friendship. We looked at it last week. It models close friendship. We saw last week that Paul and Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers together. They worked together, and then they worked in the gospel together. 
We also mentioned that it's very unusual, but Priscilla's mentioned first, and I mentioned that probably she either had a higher standing in society, possibly in the church as well, but it's an unusual way of highlighting that team with Priscilla first. It's also interesting to think about this, friends. They are able to leave Corinth, this incredibly pagan city, because there was sufficient leadership established in Corinth. Think about that for a moment. And it mentions, last week we saw Crispus and this other person named Sosthenes. So Paul, small group of people, go and they win people to Jesus, they make disciples, they establish a few elders, leaders, and then they leave town. And then they'll come back and visit. And so we're seeing from the earliest days, Paul is giving us an apostolic model and he is not smothering his people, is he? Think about that. How much he trusts Jesus to build his church, trusts the Holy Spirit to do evangelism, to make some disciples, to say, okay, now you get to do what we've modeled for you. We're leaving and we'll see you in two to 10 years. So friends, these people trusted that Jesus himself would build his church in these completely unchurched pagan areas. It's powerful to see and it's part of the subtext. Now I don't know about you, but there's not many places in the Bible that talk about haircuts. It's rather strange, isn't it? There at verse 18, and some of you who were listening may have said, he had his haircut? Maybe your mind went to, I need a haircut. But what is this about? The text doesn't really explain, but it's one of those interesting things that the author Luke is showing us here. Most likely, the Apostle Paul took a Nazarite vow. And number six talks about that. And immediately, we think of Acts 15 where it says we're freed from the law, right? So why in the world would Paul choose to do this? Text doesn't tell us, but Paul says in other places, like 1 Corinthians 9, that he would become like the Jews, become as a Jew for the Jews to win them over. So most likely, Paul had an evangelistic reason to do this. He was creating common ground between him and other people they could recognize that he was under a Nazarite Jewish vow. He probably stood out in culture, and so it connected him with other people. But the other thing that's interesting, do you remember Jesus spoke to Paul in Corinth, and he said, I am with you. Stick around here, Paul, because I'm at work here. I will be with you, and no one will harm you. Do you remember that? Early in chapter 18, so most likely, part of Paul's motivation, too, was thanksgiving. The Nazarite vow was a way of thanking the Lord and saying, thank you. I'm consecrated to you fully. I trust that you will fulfill your word that you've spoken. And so I'm taking this vow that involved not drinking any wine, not being around any dead bodies. So I know it's rather strange to see this here, but Paul says he would do just about anything that Christ would allow in order to win people over. So here he is, his hair's grown out. You can think of Samson. Samson was a lifelong Nazarite. Paul is doing it for a season, maybe just a year and a half. And then the way that the vow ended was you got your hair cut off and then you went presented yourself to the temple. So he's on his way to Antioch and he's on his way to Jerusalem.
Now, Amanda and I were talking about this. What in the world can we glean from that? It is strange, right? Maybe some of you are thinking, I want to be a Nazarite. I want to take a Nazarite vow. Can you imagine if I did that? That would be a funky looking haircut, wouldn't it? I would look probably like the scientist in Back to the Future. So we're not going to be doing Nazarite vows. But there's something in the text for us to learn. And so Amanda and I were talking about it. The point of it is consecration, isn't it? Consecration and thanksgiving to God. That's why Paul did it. He didn't do it because he had to. He was legally bound. He did it because Jesus spoke to him and he said, I'm giving myself to you. I'm going to do something outwardly that's symbolic. So I just want to ask you, how might you consecrate yourself to Jesus? Probably not a Nazarite vow, but Amanda and I in our conversation, we were talking about perhaps a little more prayer. Perhaps a little more time in the scriptures, reading the Bible. Perhaps maybe even a little bit of fasting. Do we have to do those things? No, we don't have to. But it's what nourishes us. It's what strengthens us. And even something like fasting is our telling the Lord, I love you more than food. Or I want to love you more than food. Jesus says in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish the work that he sent me for. So I think we're not going to do the Nazarite vow, but consider ways that you can grow in your consecration to Jesus, right? And again, we don't take it on religiously. The Lord doesn't need us to fast or do any of those things. It helps us sort through the clutter in our lives and set ourselves apart. And I talk with many of you about this. It doesn't mean start a 21-day fast. As a matter of fact, don't do that. It means maybe skip a meal one day. And instead of eating, you're praying to the Lord, being more mindful of that. It might mean cutting something out of your diet. Maybe you're hooked on donuts. Cut out donuts. Whatever it is, but just consecrate yourself to the Lord like Paul is modeling here. The text goes on to say that they reach Ephesus. So Paul and Priscilla and Aquila reach Ephesus, and we're going to hear more about this, so I only touch on it briefly here. This was a key port city, 140 miles of traveling. I'm going to put this slide up here if you'll look at it. Maybe the one with a map. Sorry about that. There you go. So you can see on the purple box there, Ephesus, that's where they've traveled. If you hang a left, due west, you can see they're coming from Corinth. And so they're traveling about 140 miles over to Ephesus, and then they're going to go to Antioch and Jerusalem. And so Paul is en route to Antioch. And again, we keep seeing him going back to this key city because it's his sending base. It's the place from which he sent into all these Gentile territories to take the gospel. And so it becomes a home base for him, Antioch. And the year is probably around 52 AD, the early summer, and we're able to discern this from comparing this letter with other letters in the New Testament. So we're looking at the early 50s, 52 to 53, and again, look at the end of the phrase there at verse 23. Paul is strengthening all the disciples as he goes. Paul is 
very aware of the commission that's happened in Matthew 28. Jesus appeared to him in Acts 9, but he would have known from the other disciples, he would have been aware of the Great Commission, and so he's living out the Great Commission here. He's going and making disciples, teaching them to obey all that Jesus taught his disciples, and he's strengthening them. I find it interesting that it's not Paul going around seeking to make converts. He's not holding crusades or large meetings. He is out making disciples, one-on-one, life-on-life, and at times, hundreds or even thousands of people come into the kingdom, but his commitment is to make disciples and to see them strengthened in the grace of God. Let's look at this next section here in the few minutes we've got, verses 24 to 28. We're going to see this interesting character named Apollos at verse 24. Now there came to Ephesus a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. He was an eloquent man, well-versed in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with burning enthusiasm and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he knew only the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, They took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. And when he wished to cross over to Achaia, the believers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. On his arrival, he greatly helped those who through grace had become believers. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Messiah is Jesus. So this is the, one of the only places we've got a couple of references to this guy named Apollos. And the text says that he's from Alexandria, so he's from this large city in Egypt at the mouth of the Nile River. It's a major center of learning in the ancient world. It had a famous library that people would travel from all over the empire to go and learn and study. It had a large Jewish population. He was part of that. Look at what the text says. I just want to make a few observations about him. He's an eloquent man. And that word literally means that he's educated. So he's in this city, probably kind of like Boston. If you hear the word Boston, you think of education and the Ivy Leagues and all that. Well, he's from the ancient Ivy Leagues. He's a well-versed man. He's eloquent. And then I love this phrase here. Look at the end of verse 24. He's well-versed in the scriptures. It actually means he's mighty in the scriptures. Can you imagine, church, if we were mighty in the scriptures? Anyone want to be mighty in the scriptures? Luke, you want to be mighty in the scriptures? Other young adults, think about that. Following the model of Apollos to be mighty in the Bible. To be well-versed in them, to know them, to live them, to be obsessed with them. So this guy, Apollos, that's one of the, the legacies that he leaves for the church for all time. To want to be like him. And then he crops up in 1 Corinthians, doesn't he? We hear Paul talk about Apollos, a brother in the Lord, a fellow worker, Great respect for him. And he says, Apollos watered, or I watered, Apollos, I planted, Apollos watered, and God caused the growth. So he's a friend. He's a teammate 
with the Apostle Paul, but he's mighty in the scriptures. He speaks with burning enthusiasm, the text says. But isn't this interesting? Right in the middle of this, at the end of verse 25, look at what it says. This guy's mighty in the scriptures, he's well-educated, but he only knows of the baptism of John. Is that strange? So this guy has a limited knowledge. The gospel is spreading. He doesn't have the fullness of the gospel, and yet the little bit that he knows, he knows about John the Baptist, who would have come and prepared the way, proclaimed that Christ was the Messiah. He baptized Christ, and then his whole message was repentance, John the Baptist. So Apollos knows all of this, but friends, the text doesn't say, but most people think that he doesn't really know the full story. He doesn't know about Christ's ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the day of Pentecost. And so we're going to see in 19, chapter 19, that it explains more of this. So this guy has a limited understanding of Christ, the way to Christ through repentance. And so Apollos, I mean uh, Priscilla and Aquila, take him aside and tell him the fuller picture. Isn't that beautiful? And so I think the text here is showing us there is always more to know about Jesus. And this is the kind of church we want to be here. We want to be mighty in the scriptures. We want to know the word of God. We want to share Jesus, but we always want to remain humble. Amen? And like Apollos, to be learning more about Jesus all the time. Whether you're 10 or Smokey's age, pushing 100, we always want to be learning more about Jesus, sitting before him, hearing his word. So the text ends here. I think it's rather beautiful that Priscilla and Aquila are taking him aside rather than publicly, right? This is respectful. They're saying, this guy is full of knowledge. He's powerful and explaining the gospel, the limited gospel that he has, but it's enough. He's refuting the Jews who are resisting Christ, and yet they take him aside and they explain to him the gospel more fully. So again, it's a model for us, for the older folks, the more experienced people, to take along the newer believers and explain the ways of Christ to them more fully. Why don't we stand? We're right at 12 o'clock, and again, next week, this kind of is a preface here of Ephesus, and next week we're going to look at chapter 19. I would encourage you to read chapter 19 for next week. There's a lot going on there. There's signs and wonders and miracles. There's demonized people getting set free. There's going to end up being a riot in the city because the gospel is spreading like wildfire in Ephesus. It's a wonderful chapter. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would empower us through the week. Like Apollos, we would be mighty in the scriptures. You would fill us with your spirit, send us out to share the gospel, to live the gospel for your glory.